Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward podcast, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. This week, in our search for truth, we look at the boundaries of peaceful protest, including for vegans, discuss the now-released French review of free speech on campus, and complain, or not, about still not knowing the date of the federal election. I'm Scott Hargroves, editor of the IPA Review, joined as always by my co-host from RMIT University, Chris Berg. Morning, Scott. Morning, Chris. Today, we also welcome to the show IPA Research Fellow, Andrew Bushnell. Cheers, Scott. And the return of that long-time ornament to the IPA, Richard Allsop. Always a pleasure to be here, Scott. Great to have you. Ornament is very offensive. <laughs> I quite like <laughs> it. Au contraire. Au contraire. Well, I, yeah, I do not take offence. Okay. I choose not to take offence. Yeah, de- decorative and functional. <laughs> very good. Yeah. Sort of Art Deco and yeah. Bauhaus at the same yeah. time. And ironic all at the same time. <laughs> That's all. right. And in our final segment on books and culture, we'll look at a couple of absolute classics, Paul Carter's memoirs of his life on the oil rigs, an economic classic, rivalry and central planning, a historical work on George Higginbotham, and Bushnell, as always, will do something about a Netflix production this (laughs) this time, The Highwayman. If you're listening on iTunes or any of the other great podcast platforms, do not forget to subscribe to Looking Forward. Today we're going to kick off with something that's uh, been a nationwide story. Uh, recent protests by uh, so-called vegans. Chris Berg, what's going on? It's not just a nationwide story. So I got an email overnight from um, some American colleagues of mine who who asked how I survived the great vegan revolt of 2019. Um, so activists in Melbourne and people um, around the country may have seen this story, but activists in Melbourne brought rush hour traffic to a halt in the CBD, blocking trams outside Flinders Street Station, which is one of the busiest um, spaces on rush hour in in, in Australia, as well as um, uh, invading several abattoirs in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, I think there's a lot that we can talk about this and, and we were talking about exactly which what is the most interesting direction to go. And I, I think to start though, um, there's a big debate about how much we should be penalising or punishing these sorts of obstructive actions. So there seems to be um, charges going to be laid on quite a number of people for obstructing emergency workers is the line. But the federal attorney general, Christian Porter, also believes that penalties should be increased. So given that we have Andrew Bushnell, the IPA's criminal justice um, uh, conciliary, um, the question is to Andrew, how much should we punish protest, political protest? One of the distinctions that we make, Chris, in our criminal justice work is between uh, over-incarceration and over-punishment. So when we talk about uh, over-punishment, we're saying, or over-criminalisation, we're saying, if we talk about over-criminalisation, we're saying something shouldn't really be a crime. If we talk about over-punishment, we're talking about something being punished more heavily than it should be. If we talk about over-incarceration, we're saying something should be punished, but not necessarily with jail. So this is a a case where... um, I come down on the view that this is something that should be criminal. Um, so I don't think this is an over-criminalisation matter, in particular the obstruction of emergency vehicles. Whether or not it needs to be punished with incarceration probably depends on the scale. So uh, the traditional standard in uh, criminal justice across the English-speaking world is that the punishment must fit the crime. Uh, and the idea there is that the punishment should in some way, you know, it can't be done precisely, but in some way it should be balanced with the the severity of the offence. And I think you can make a really strong case that someone who obstructs an ambulance is participating in something that could really... It could actually kill someone. You don't know where that ambulance is going. And for me, 
Um, the issue here isn't whether this is something that we ought to punish. I think it's very clear that we should. Um, but I would be hesitant to lock people up unless you could show that there was a really severe uh, punishment. I would say, you know, fines, community service, restitution, all these kinds of things come into the into play and you can sort of pile those on one on top of the other to get some sort of punitive effect. It, it strikes me that it's quite clear if we're talking about emergency vehicles, but Richard, should we be punishing people for blocking trams? Yeah, I mean, I think this has always been a difficult area to adjudicate because we know that if one person stands out in the middle of a busy intersection with a placard spruiking some weird cult or something, they will very quickly be taken away by the authorities. Whereas if you get hundreds of thousands of people turning up for a demonstration about something, it's usually allowed to happen. Now, obviously, a lot of demonstrations happen with pre-arrangement with the police and so that people can... Such, such as the uh, the workers' march yes, today exactly, in, exactly. in, uh, in and Melbourne. And that's what the typical thing of, of if you like, mainstream organisations will make arrangements and therefore things like emergency workers can plan around it. It's the, but the, the nature of this particular vegan demonstration was it would prompt you. They also chose a morning when a number of Melbourne's train lines were out of operation so there were extra buses being deployed which were about to terminate there so it actually really compounded the, the congestion that was caused. Um, so clearly um, people obviously have a right to demonstrate People have a right to demonstrate and hold rallies in public places, so, you know, parks and so forth. We, we would allow people to hold rallies and make their point in that sort of situation. But when, obviously, as a community, we draw the line at impromptu blocking of intersections for an extended period of time, um, obviously here they were asked to move along. They didn't, and that's when the police started to take some action against them. But to take it... So this is a slightly devil's advocate position, but I think there's something to this. Is it, Does that just say then that um, you're allowed to make public protest, which is an yep. act of free expression, free if speech. you ask the state first, if you ask the police first? No, no, I don't think that's the correct, because I think you're allowed to, in, and it probably depends a bit on location as to where you do it. Like if these people had been demonstrating in a public park where they weren't, creating any disruption to traffic. I don't think anybody should suggest they should be moved on. They should be allowed to hold a rally for as, as long as they like. Um, I think it's just... It's, it's a classic example of weighing up different rights here, and I think we just have to, you know, as a community, constantly have this debate about what is an appropriate thing to do and what's not. And I think the, the point here, the police clearly let them do it for quite a while before the police took action. So I think the police sort of said to them, right, you can make your point for a little while, but now's the time you have to move on. And <laughs> but they that's didn't. actually close to... And that, they didn't. Yeah. Mm. That's my sort of squishy view, mm. and I don't yeah. really like this sort of half-half thing. Mm. Um, but but uh, we had this big debate with Occupy Wall Street and mm. then, again, Occupy Melbourne in 2011. Mm. Um, and Occupy Melbourne set themselves up in City Square, which it's is a very... Public place. Uh, yep. Public place, mm. very central location. Mm. And people have a right to protest yep. in that sense. But they don't necessarily have an unlimited right to set up tents. No, yep. you don't have the right to appropriate public space, right? The, everyone, if you want to reduce it to individual property rights, and I think that we actually do have a, a difference here about... Um, whether you're assessing this at the individual level, say the lone protester wandering around in traffic versus a collective action. But if you want to reduce it to individual property rights, the way public space works is that we each of us have an easement over the space. And an easement <laughs> means you move through the space. Mm. It doesn't mean you you squat 
on the space because everyone has to use it. But look, it's not well, suddenly your house. But this, mm. um, this, this, this has been a good discussion. But uh, as at the same time as it was happening, as you said, Chris, we've, we, we've been talking about public spaces up, up till now. There were also uh, invasions of farms uh, or, or of facilities for intensive agriculture in, in three states. And uh, this is a completely different set of circumstances. And we've seen... Uh, the Gippy Goat Cafe uh, closed in uh, uh, in uh, Yarragon, I think it is, in, mm. in Gippsland, a, a cafe attached to a working farm where uh, there's there's vision which many people listening would have seen of uh, the goats were basically kidnapped uh, by, and we're calling them vegans, but really they're animal rights activists. I, I don't quite know <laughs> mm. what, oh, it's serious. There's something yeah. funny going on here that um, uh, they've chosen to call themselves vegans. Uh, I think it's an insult to vegans. These are uh, radical animal rights protesters, no respect for private property and, and, and certainly in, in Victoria seemingly the, uh, the police and the courts um, seem to be unwilling to uh, get very excited about these breaches of, uh, of private property rights. Uh, and, you know, if you're actually on a farm and you see 50 or 60 people coming down the driveway, I don't think that would be a very good thing at all. So it's one thing to say, isn't it terrible that they've blocked this intersection at Flinders and Swanson? But how is this different to a home invasion? No, no, I, I, in, in that sense, I don't think it is. And the, the um, violation of property doesn't... So, so the, there's sort of two ways to think about it, and I'll sort of talk about it from the freedom of speech theory perspective first. Because, you know, expression can be speech. So, you know, just because something is not um, uh, spoken or written doesn't mean that it's not speech. You know, we care about freedom of expression as well. And in one sense, protest is a freedom of expression that, that deserves a protection. But only to the extent that that action is actually the expressive part. So I sort of would have more sympathy if they were invading property as a protest of the existence of private property, because that would be the expression. Now, I think they should still be punished for that invasion of property because we have property rights and we need to protect those property rights and not just excuse it on the grounds of freedom of speech. But the deliberate invasion, and and um, it, I'm not sure in this instance, but in previous instance, sometimes vandalism and sometimes destruction of property that has involved some of these raids on controversial businesses or newly controversial businesses. Um, uh, you know, th that that doesn't actually match the expressive intent of the um, of the speech, if you know what I mean. I actually think, mm. it, uh, ironically, here some of them could also be charged with animal cruelty. In fact, the way they treated some of the goats they took from the Gippy Goat Factory too. <laughs> Indeed, the only, the only thing is, Chris, I think if you dig down into the people that organised this protest, uh, the the group called Aussie Farms, um, Christopher Delforce, uh, who's Melbourne-based uh, director of what is laughingly a, uh, a registered charity, um, is uh, I, I would actually say that. They've got zero interest in private property. If you read all their works, it's all um, it's a an activist organisation which has a, accumulated all of the activist attitudes towards pretty much everything. You know, this is a it's a function of capitalism. They talk about climate change. This idea that if 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 you didn't have to produce meat, then there wouldn't be enough you know environmental uh, footprint. Um, there was an interview uh, with the uh, newspaper The Land where Christopher Delforce said, you know, he wanted to be an activist. He tried doing something around poverty, but he, because he said, uh, I, you know, I'm very aware that I was born into a life of considerable opportunity and privilege. 
he tried doing poverty for a while, but it wasn't getting anywhere. And then he discovered animal rights. <laughs> so this this was just an activist in, in search of a cause. And life, life is about discovery, and that's and, nice. And all, all, all of these left-wing causes, they all start to collide after a while and, and become very predictable. So this, this is why I really do object, because... Some of my best friends are vegans. Good luck to them. That's <laughs> yes. their right. Yes. But this this is actually, I think, a quite a quite radical agenda and the fact that they've got contempt for private property and personal space uh, and family farms, I think, is all of a piece with their radical ideology. No, I, I think that's worth talking about. So this is um, part of the... I mean, we've always had a cultural war over food and food practices. Food and food practices are such a deep part of the human experience and such a deep part of our lives, and we've built so much of our culture around that. No surprise that there's a there's a battle. But it's it is worth talking about um, uh, this this specific protest in, in on the topic of its protest. You know, they they decided to raise consciousness, and here we are, the IPA talking about. Um, uh, talking about the topic. So um, uh, this yeah. protest was launched, my understanding, by the release of a map by this Aussie Farms group, a map of a what they describe as a comprehensive interactive map of factory farms, slaughterhouses and other animal exploitation facilities. And the idea was that now that they have released this map, now that they've got a map of food production um, uh, and, and manufacturing and farms, um, then they can systematically go through and, yeah. and, and, and raid them and, and make a problem. Yeah. Um, but it's not, as you say, it's not veganism per se, because veganism is a personal choice. Mm. Now, it can be turned into a political philosophy, but it doesn't have to be turned into no. action. No. I mean, I think the interesting thing here is, again, it's one of a whole suite of um, things, as sort of Scott makes the point, of a, a sort of a radical agenda. A again, it's sort of... A, a hundred years ago, the thought that you know everybody in the community could have meat whenever they wanted it was seen as something to be aspired to, probably by those on the left. You know that everybody should share in this sort of um, thing that had traditionally been a privilege of those the better off in the community. Whereas now, as with a lot of these sort of pursuits, it seems to be once they become community wide and everybody's able to share in them, we then get these left activists who want to, for some reason to stop it, things that, um, so in, in a way there's a similarity with the eating of meat, with, you know, enjoyment of um, alcohol, certain other types El of electricity. food. Electricity. Electricity, yeah, all these sorts of things that once they become universal, um, that there's, there's some sort of push to stop the, the pleasure of the whole community in enjoying a lot of these products. But and I think, I, I sorry. think uh, sorry, Chris, I, I think what that, I think they would say that, uh, an individual personal commitment without some sort of activism towards realising your personal commitment as established truth in society is actually hypocrisy. So they would say, mm. yes, I'm a, I'm a vegan because I'm committed to animal rights. I believe that deeply. And in the same way that, say, someone who is pro-life is an activist for establishing that mm. position as the uh, within the law, they would say that the activism is actually integral to their moral commitment um, and I think, I think that the the difference here is that they would say that they, their position is the true liberal one, in that they recognise animals as part of this uh, story, this wig history of the expanding moral circle, mm. Mm. Um, and that we need to extend our conscientious uh, uh, mm. and just treatment of beings to animals. But animals can't speak for themselves, so they will speak for them. Uh, and in doing so, they will enact uh, at a collective level their personal moral commitments. So mm. they, would, they would argue, I think, that 
um, their individual activism is in service of a uh, of a very liberal, very enlightenment idea of justice, uh, and that's why they're able to set up this uh, conflict between the rights of animals, which they've included in the concept of justice, uh, and the property rights that you and I would recognise mm. as more traditionally yeah. part of the concern of justice. Yeah. So, so to quote the University of Sydney, this is why we're investing in multi-species justice research. Why are we talking so much? So I, when we started this podcast, I yeah. did not expect to repeatedly talk about animals. Multi-species justice. Or multi-species justice. Uh, amusing sort of thing that we spoke about a few weeks. Yeah, ago. no, I mean, that precisely, here and and here we are again. Why why are we talking about animal rights? Why are we talking about animal justice now, Andrew? Because I, well, I would say that because for about two hundred years we've excluded uh, talk about what is good from the public sphere, and we've tried to cram every notion that we have about the good and what uh, how life should be lived into the concept of justice. And the concept of justice is basically collapsing under the weight of this because not everything is about what is right. Not everything is about rights that are held by beings. Uh, some things are about actually how a, a good life is lived. Um, and if you, if you assess it from a, a more traditional uh, point of view, the, human, the expression of human nature and the human flourishing involves a kind of dominion I know that the, these activists hate this word, but a kind of dominion over the earth where we utilise what is available to us for our flourishing. And that, in fact, being used in that way is in some sense an expression of the nature of the other things in the world. And they really do not agree with this. <laughs> yeah, is, so is this... Is this a, uh, I mean, one interpretation of what you've just said, which I think is really compelling, is um, that we are increasingly legalizing our idea of what the um what the good is so i've been very struck by um these days when we talk about human rights specifically we'll talk about um the we as a society will talk about the list of united nations human rights that have been determined and you know the dozens and hundreds of these human rights in um international law or convention or or, or, or treaty and and we decide well you know it's a human right if it's in this and 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 that's the scope of our human rights debate but i think what you're saying is something a, a more general point about the expansion or or the failure to find a coherent whole in that the more random collection. the more expansive rights talk becomes the more it becomes a substantive discussion about what's good um so the more prescriptive you are about rights the more you're actually outlining a substantive moral position um, because you are increasingly dictating how people will live under this regime so a very uh, narrow sense of of right um uh, the classical liberal sense, perhaps, of negative liberty um, is actually a, a very short sort of list. Um, and it's not that prescriptive, right? It's framed negatively. Um, but uh, the distinction between negative and positive liberty kind of collapses at a certain point. The more you add on, the more prescriptive elements there are. And the more prescriptive elements there are, the more you're outlining a substantive view of the good, which will clash with mm. traditional ideas of what a good life is. Mm. Uh, and I think what we're seeing here, this is why sometimes uh, environmentalism is likened to a religion. Um, and that's just because they have a, a, a very prescriptive view of what is good for people. And they intend to, through collective action, impose on us. In, if I'm putting my philosophy nerd hat on... Oh, please do. Um, <laughs> the, the, what we're seeing now is that as... as 
uh, liberalism uh, as a system of right being prior to the good uh, expands, uh, as, and as rights talk expands, it becomes a more substantive doctrine. And the, the notion, the, the Enlightenment notion that there is such a thing as anti-perfectionist politics, uh, which means that a politics that does not implement a perfectionist uh, view of what is good in life mm. is actually uh, collapsing and we're back to debating whose values, whose idea of the good will prevail. Mm. Now, I mean, I think it's, it's a really interesting thing. And again, it's a great... Because we, we have now legislated in the Western world for in a sense, certain rights for animals, because there's all sorts of laws against animal cruelty, um, which, you know, are, are there. So in, in one sense, it's not that big a leap from then if you're saying we don't want these sort of things to happen to animals to take that extra little step and say, well, actually animals, these are actually rights for animals and they need to be, you know, we need to go that extra step and say they have rights as opposed to just these things we, we as a community don't like people being cruel to animals. But, but I think the difference is, and this comes back mm. to our original discussion on, on lawful protest, which is, um, you know, the, the, the liberal democratic order has, you know, includes mm. protest within it. But essentially it's, it's, uh, it's about changing legislation, mm. uh, it's about actions by governments, by regulators, it's an acceptance of uh, free speech, uh, should be allowed to debate all these options, uh, legislatures... Mm ultimately put a legal regime into effect. Uh, you protest in, uh, in public places, ideally with mm-hmm. a bit of, uh, bit of a heads up for the, for the police and emergency services, these kinds of things. What we're seeing here, I think, is a, is a radical rejection of that notion mm. because of all the things that Andrew just talked about. Once you have that, that fundamentally different worldview, you're also mm. rejecting the rules of the game. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's deeply liberal on, on multiple levels because they... they uh, these these sorts of activists, um, whether they're vegans or, or any other niche group, um, these sorts of activists are um, they want to impose their worldview on everyone else. So it's, that's that's an illiberalism, and their mechanism to do so is also an illiberal mechanism because they 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 have the right to protest, which is fantastic, but they also are doing it in a way that is deliberately illiberal, which is mm. the preventing the trams outside Flinders Street Station, which is the invading private property rights. We all have the capacity that, to um, mount those arguments, whether it's pro or against animal um, consumption mm. and uh, factory farming and all that sort of thing in the public space under the existing rule of law, protected by. Um, our laws that protect freedom of speech, as um, weak as unfortunately they are, but we don't have a right to um, significantly affect others' lives disconnected to the content of that speech. Yeah, but the logic that gets you property rights, rule of law, may also, followed through to its logical conclusion, get you to an animal rights or you know animal justice type position. Uh, it could be the case uh, that... In fact, what we need to do is explain uh, liberty, our liberties individually uh, as expressions of or nested within our idea of order and what is good um, because that is what they intend to do. Um, the sort of postmodern uh, element of this is the, this critique that liberalism was always a sham. You know, that's, this is what they say. They say, oh, mm. you, you care about yeah. property rights, but that's because you own property. Um, Thomas Jefferson had slaves. That's, oh, that's yeah, the basic, and yeah. and that's what they say. But they so they accept they accept. I think some of the premises. They say, oh yes, yeah, individual liberation. We love that. Um, participatory democracy. We love that. Um, but you're a hypocrite because you 
defend institutions that actually thwart the full expression of those values and we're the true ones. Um, and in that sense, uh, there's an interesting kind of uh, symmetry between the postmodern critique and the pre-modern uh, sort of classical conservative Joseph de Maistre style critique of liberalism that it's actually uh, a sham. Now, what I would say to that, just, just to finish the thought, is that no, we need to look at things like property rights, things like the rule of law, as particular institutions that have value in themselves. And instead of trying to systematise them with theory, we just need to look at what works. But we do need to defend an idea of human life as, in some sense, special. And if you call me a speciesist on the back of that, well, <laughs> I think I'll just, so I think I'll just wear it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 you, you radical, right, you, right. <laughs> you, you reactionary, you. Yes, that just... That'll just confirm people's view of the IPA, won't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, those free speech absolutists. Speciesists. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, our absolutism in respect of free speech uh, has also caused us to be interested in the French Review. We discussed it last week, but because everything takes longer than it should with the Morrison government, we did not actually have the report in front of us. Now we do. The report of Justice French into free speech on campus has now been released is recommended a code of conduct very interesting it is really interesting scott so um uh, i i had a read of it as i know you did as well so this is the robert french review into free speech in australian universities it was released was it released over the weekend um saturday uh, yep. saturday um uh, robert french of course being a former just chief justice of the high court now so um uh the french review concludes really two two things. So at f first it says that claims of a freedom of speech crisis on campus are not substantiated, which I think we should talk about. And then it concludes that, or it recommends, I should say, a voluntary code of conduct along uh, that the universities could voluntarily sign up to, along with some clarification, whether it's legislative clarification or, or voluntary clarification, about the importance of freedom of speech and academic freedom on campuses. So that's free speech for the students and free speech for the academics as well. Now, I've read this report, and I, for the life of me, cannot come to understand why he was able to conclude that claims of a freedom of speech crisis on campus are not substantiated because of the significant list of freedom of speech arguments that many people, including the Institute of Public Affairs, presented and are actually listed in the review, <laughs> yes. yeah. he doesn't look at them. So the report deliberately and specifically does not go through the claims of freedom of speech or the freedom of speech crisis claims it, and and says so you know because you know it wouldn't be any great value um it would be too contested and so forth and maybe that maybe that's true but you can't not look at them and then <laughs> claim they haven't been substantiated i mean maybe that's formally and, true <laughs> they haven't been and if there's no crisis and they're not substantiated why are you recommending this code of conduct so it's it's mm. very unclear to me and 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 so i think this has been a call i mean robert french um is obviously an excellent jurist but i think this is all been a complete waste of time. Oh, um, disagree because <laughs> because um, uh, apart from like consciousness raising in a vegan protest sense, because it's not clear <laughs> where we are at all differently um, before the French Review occurred. Well, but we have the significant benefit of the vindication of the IPA's position. I think um, the fact that he has recommended, as Scott says, the fact that he has recommended this code of conduct 
is a vindication of the work that, in particular, was put into this uh, by our colleague Matthew Lesh. No, no, no. no I, I think that's I think that's that's correct. But but the French review itself, I think there's sort of political strategy reasons yeah. that we should be quite pleased, and I think it does it, it does vindicate, and the government has vindicated all all that the consciousness raising mm. and all the research that the IPA has done. Um, but we, the, the review itself no, 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 no. adds no value. No, no, no. no, you, no you <laughs> miss, you miss, and does anybody think a code of conduct is really going to help? Yes, yes, I do. You because do, this good. is this is the thing. So first of all, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't want to go through the specific allegations of 50-plus uh, items in Matthew Lesh's most recent uh, free speech on campus audit. But the point is, Lesh was looking at all these accumulated bureaucratic policies and regulations uh, which supposedly had free speech in there and academic inquiry in there somewhere as, you know, in a bunt, you know, as one of the things that was going to be balanced. French has said, no, it is paramount. Mm. In this conduct code of conduct, it is clear that free speech is a uh, paramount or a primary obligation on universities and you said staff and students and they say and visiting speakers. Yep. Now if that's not patin- if that's not about patina art, I don't know <laughs> what is. And so he's very snippy. He's like he's like Lady Bracknell sitting there saying, Oh, you know, oh those polemical IPA people, you know, isn't that report terrible? I'm not going to rule on their allegations. But he accepted the central thesis that Matthew Lesh was making that all these you know, out you know, out of control bureaucracies are going to squash free speech, not because they're necessarily targeting it, but because they don't really care. No, and that's absolutely right. And you you look through, and and that's um, a big impression that you get from reading the report, yeah. just how unsystematic thinking about freedom of speech yeah. and academic freedom yeah. has actually well, been on campus. Well, I think, that, and it, it, I think the report does show um, the incredible, in a sense, bureaucratization of universities. You know, so a lot of so some of this crushing of free speech is because you know there's a lot of left-wing people in universities but a big element too is just the sheer bureaucratization of universities where a lot of bureaucrats running universities the key thing they want is a quiet life so the last thing they want on campus is a controversial speaker yes. and having to organize security and they potentially have to stay late to oversee the problem and all this sort of <laughs> so i think that that's a huge part of this problem the, the two sort of go together. The left-wing activists trying to stop it and then the bureaucrats trying to do anything to, you know, just keep keep the peace and have a, have a quiet and docile university. Yeah, I think the other thing that's happened here, and, and you know, I worked, I worked with Matthew on some of his early reports, and uh, so in 2016 there was a studied indifference, a sort of a death by silence, and by about 2017 the... Um, uh, the incidents were starting to pile up and uh, some of the universities were starting to bite back. I think there's actually been a bit of an end run around those bureaucrats mm. by the chancellors. Like, mm. this is the thing. If this was such a non-issue, why in October 2018 did the chancellors invite Matthew Lesh, you know, a young, very intelligent upstart from the IPA, <laughs> uh, to come and speak at their conference? And I, I think there's actually been a bit of a, you know, we'll never really know, but you take someone like Gareth Evans, who's Chancellor of the ANU, and he, he said in his speech, an absolute priority in this respect is maintaining totally intact with no qualifications whatsoever the traditional idea of the university as the home of free speech. Mm-hmm. And so I think they've actually... No, the chancellors uh, have got this, together, is, and, and French uh, yeah. is part of the chancellors' club. But, but I, I think I, I think they've they've organised this whole strategy to get a, get around their own bureaucracy. But what what this tells us is that Matthew Lesh, his research has been more significant and more powerful than the former Chief Justice Robert French's 
research has been significant. And that now there's a couple of things that we could draw from that. Turns out that you know private sector research is really important, but also um, you know this government is really wet. <laughs> this is, like they, they've done this, they've come out with a, a, a report that recommends a voluntary code of conduct, and the best case scenario for what the Morrison government has done on academic freedom of speech is partially validate um, and and not consider the massive amount of research that the IPA has done unless. In particular, yeah. So now, we'll, I've 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 talked a little bit in my appearances on this show about the sort of a, the the possibility of inconsistency between different institutions based on what their purposes are. Universities are designed for their purpose is freedom of expression. That it is literally baked into the idea of the university that you will have freedom of inquiry and you will go back and forth on things. And so what I took from this... It's just a knockout junior accountants as far yeah. as I can tell. <laughs> yeah, what, what, I took, what I took from this was actually... But that's, that's true because our universities have been bureaucratised. They have been uh, uh, economised. They have been marketized, But deep down underneath all of it, there's a thousand years of history here about what research is actually supposed to do for the world. And I think, if nothing else, we can at least say it's very welcome to hear... Someone say, just point out, even if it's just a voluntary code of conduct, the purpose of universities remains the same thing. And for me, at like, as, a, as a conservative, I'm very happy to have someone say, it's still the same thing and you don't get to just, you know, you know just because you're the vice president of diversity or whatever, doesn't mean you get to change... Um, no, no, that's the, right. What the university that, that's is right. And for. so th- there's sort of two things that universities can do. There's, there's the, you know, cranking out students and giving them certifications and so forth. And that, but, but the benefit of those certifications goes to the students. There's actually no reason that the government is involved in that sense. The social purpose of a university, the reason that we pour so much money into them, the reason that they have a privileged position in society is precisely that, because we believe as a society that we need a domain in which people can make knowledge contributions and can can actually discover new things about the world and discover new directions of truths and, and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and in that space, it's very hard for universities to um, uh, to remember sometimes that yeah. that is one of their main roles. Mm. And I mean, but, uh, but part of the thing we, we often talk about, you know, universities and challenging and free inquiry and things. But part of the thing too is just making people with what might be considered mainstream views feel comfortable, particularly in the humanities departments of universities. I always remember somebody saying to me during the period of the Howard government, if somebody in the over morning tea in a history department had said they were going to vote for John Howard, which roughly half the Australian population were doing, there would have been, like, hell to pay. Nobody would have spoken to them for <laughs> ever again because they had what was up in the normal community would be a, a mainstream view. And I think it's part of that unspoken thing where people with certain views know that, particularly in the humanities departments of universities, they need to keep their views to themselves. And, qu- and quite right, because the... <laughs> they should keep that. No, 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 no. Because, <laughs> because, because the, the flip side of... So, you know, innovation and, and free inquiry is one part of the purpose, but that is enabled by the other part of the purpose of universities, which is the transmission mm. of the great ideas of our civilization into the future. It's within that context, within that tradition, that the real innovation takes place. This is why we've had... Uh, here at the Institute of Public Affairs, we've had Mark Bauer on from the United States uh, out here to talk about his experience as a university professor in communicating the great books to people. And so you can't really do 
one without the other. And so when it comes down to t- making people with mainstream views um, or views that fit within that tradition comfortable, that is absolutely something that the universities need to be aware of because it has become the view that those who defend the heritage of Western civilization, which is part of what the university exists for, those people, people like us, are now decried as, you know, oppressors. Mm. Uh, yeah, but, but there's a tension there. So, so um, Andrew, you want to talk about tensions. So there's a real tension there <laughs> that um, uh, the university has one purpose, which is, so in the conservative story, um, which I agree with, the university has two social purposes, I should say. It, um, it is to pass on knowledge to the next generation, so to vouchsafe that knowledge, hand it off to um, uh, future generations. But it's also to um, discover new things about the world. And the way that manifests itself is, on the one hand, um, theoretically we would like university um, uh, academics to teach the great ideas of Western civilization. On the other hand, in the, on their research side of their job, they spend their time problematizing the no, ideas. It's, of the, Western it's the same purpose. It's the same purpose. This is the this is the problem. It's the same purpose. The purpose of preserving the knowledge that we have gleaned at you know high price over <laughs> thousands of years of civilization is so that it continues to be useful into the future. And you use the word discover there, and that's really important because. The debate, if you, as like as I do when I attend lectures at university uh, involving the, the academic staff and things, you get a sort of debate between the people who think that we are inquiring into the world to discover knowledge and people who think that they are there to conceive new knowledge as though such a thing were possible. And why, this is the thing that I kept coming back to when I read about, you know, the French report, I read uh, Matthew Lesher's work, why do they hate freedom of speech in university so much. Mm. And it's because it's because they are trying to construct a new reality. Their fantasy world does not survive contact with reality. They know that. And so the only way to perpetuate the fantasy world is if everyone participates. Yeah. And it, it is fascinating. If you look at all debates in universities about free speech up to the 60s and even into the 70s, the advocates of free speech almost universally are sort of from the left attacking the conservative establishment of a university. Like, like yeah. Gareth Evans, whom yeah, I exactly. quoted earlier. That was, the, that was what made me think of it, that reference to Gareth Evans. So free speech was something to challenge, you know, conservative universities that didn't allow a lot of, you know, debate and would, wouldn't um, allow more left-wing th- ideas to come into universities and obviously it was highlighted during all the Vietnam War and all that sort of thing. And it shows how much the world has changed in that now um, a lot of those left-wing ideas that people were pushing then now are sort of the establishment across universities. So therefore, the free speech challenge is coming from a completely different direction to what it was 50 years ago. But they'll make one argument when they need it for power. They'll make another argument when they need that for power. I, I think... Possibly, at least some of these people are cynics, and it would, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't do us any good to look for mm. a that, theoretical that, basis so for their that's actions. Right. The, the French, the French report will only be—it's uh, one milestone in what will be a very long uh, uh, struggle uh, when it comes to uh, universities. Mm. That's for sure. Uh, we're also looking uh, because it's the modern age. Uh, we get our ideas from Twitter. Richard Di Natale <laughs> put this tweet out on April seventh. He said, it's time for fixed election dates and an end to the rot that is taxpayer-funded advertising for government <laughs> propaganda in the lead-up to an election. 
come on, Bill. I presume he means Shorten. Come on, Bill. Let's work together to yeah. fix this. Yeah. Can I say that that, that, that that tweet is the greatest non sequitur that I have ever read? <laughs> you can say that. Would you like to say that? I would like to say that. Yeah. How on earth would having fixed four-year terms in any way stop Government advertising. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's you just complete, bring them forward. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're two completely different concepts. So, I, mean, so I mean, but now, like Mr. Dinatali, I'm very much opposed to you know, the, the rot of excessive government advertising and supporting political things. But unlike Mr. Dinatali, I'm completely opposed to having you know four year terms because how how in any way has anybody ever been able to show that four year <laughs> terms lead to better government than three year terms so 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 the the story to this is that um Scott Morrison as we all know didn't call the election over the weekend um uh, when he was widely expected to do uh, uh people expected it to be on the 11th of May now it's going to be on the 18th or um potentially on the 25th of May but that will be a lot harder for the government so he might call it this weekend so it sparked this interminable debate interminable debate on Twitter particularly amongst journalists and the political class about why we don't have federal fixed terms it's really hard to organize your may because we don't know precisely when the election is so there's a lot of there's the a lot of tears a lot of tears school, from heaven on this um, uh, and and so we're back here again we're having a debate about federal fixed terms only Tasmania at the moment the Tasmania and the Commonwealth are the only ones with unfixed terms um, every other state government has fixed terms Queensland will from from 2020 but it started this this um, discussion now um, there, there was a very interesting um, sentence in a crikey piece on this why can't we have fixed four-year terms like a normal country, quote, normal country. Um, now, I, I have a theory. I have a theory about this. I, my theory is that um, despite the apparent love around the world for taking a Westminster system and making it into a fixed-term Westminster system, I don't think those that those two ideas actually function together. I think the idea of a fixed term is contrary to the structure of a Westminster government and creates periodic crisis. So my argument is this. So governments are formed in the House. That's how the Westminster system functions. And it also follows that governments fail in the House. They, they fall when they run out of... Um, uh, when they run out of support and they can't they can't pass budgets or confidence motions or so forth that's the basic structure of it and then you have regular updates of of who who can sit in parliament but what happens under a fixed term what happens if a government falls when it's not time for a new election well each constitution is different, but they have all introduced some sort of regulatory workaround that involves confidence motions, and then sometimes there are you've got to wait for some more time, and then you've got to go to the governor, and the governor asks for another confidence motion, and it, and it, there's these enormously complicated regulatory structures that every once in a while just fail to operate. And the most recent instance of this was again in Victoria, where the um, coalition government really wanted to go to an election really wanted to go to election because it could barely hold power in the House, but the Labor government refused to launch a confidence motion because it knew it was more embarrassing for the government just to look like it was it couldn't control Parliament. I think I think the idea of fixed terms don't work, apart from your point, Richard, which is that there's no evidence to suggest that they, they make mm. better government. Well I'm not so I mean 
there's, I mean, and there's two different, completely different concepts here too. It's you know, I don't know why people necessarily put them together because you could move to fixed three people. Like for some reason, when people talk about moving to fixed terms, they always add in the bit yeah, about yeah. four years. Because terms voting as well. is bad, and we should have less of it. Well, that's always seems to be <laughs> it's the thing. inconvenient. It you know, makes it hard to plan my May. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing because you know, in, in the rise of democracy in the 19th century, you know that the great Democrats, the Chartists, wanted. Annual parliaments. That was one of their key demands, that they they thought parliaments went for too long. But in this modern era, we have this constant push to lengthen the terms of parliaments, which is just really strange, really anti-democratic, and also based on this incredibly, in my view, fallacious assumption that somehow longer terms deliver better government. Because campaign season interrupts technocratic government. Right? <laughs> so when you're implementing your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, your 15-year plan... Yeah, Which I'm sure they'll be great plans. Yeah. I'm sure they look, they'll be look, great they plans. They look enviously at China and they say, imagine the things we could get done if we didn't have to talk to the damn voters. And that's that's what this is. And I would say that my colleague uh, Dan Wild and I wrote a thing about this uh, exact issue in The Spectator uh, about a year and a half ago or two years ago because the last time this idea, this zombie idea, won't die, uh, the last time it came up, it was floated by a Liberal MP, mm. David Coleman, uh, for exactly the same reasons, which just goes to show my thesis <laughs> that the Liberal Party and the Green Party are converging. <laughs> okay. Well, I think it also shows, for, for perhaps obvious reasons, politicians tend to be in favour of longer terms, you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> then they well, that's one other. That's an alternative explanation. <laughs> no, no. Stick with mine. <laughs> We have reached that point in the show where we talk about books and culture. I'm going to start with Richard because he actually has the book in front of him. Tell us about that, Richard. Yes, it's a book by um, an author which I hadn't previously heard, Geraldine Moore. It's George Higginbotham and Eureka, The Struggle for Democracy in Colonial Victoria. Now, for those who don't know George Higginbotham, he was one of those um, people that we don't really get anymore in, in the in the modern era, but in, in back in the 19th century, he turned up in Australia as an immigrant. Um, within a couple of years, was editor editing two Melbourne newspapers, including um, the Argus at the time. Then he became a member of Parliament and uh, important minister in the government of Parliament. And then after that, he went on to become Chief Justice of Victoria. So he combined three career diff, very different um, careers, and he was a very important figure in uh, colonial liberalism in the debates that took place um, in Victoria, at, um, debating all different aspects of liberalism. Um, Look, it's not a. In some ways, the book has some flaws, um, just in terms of structure and a whole um, some other things. But what is fascinating, and it constantly raises, and we've had this in some of the other topics we've discussed today, how many of the debates that people were having in in the eighteen fifties and eighteen sixties and eighteen seventies still have resonance today? Um, topics like a key issue in that period in Victoria was how do you fund education? Should government be involved in only you know that was in did, the process did, did of they ask david gonski to have a look at it no they did they wisely didn't no the they wisely ed- didn't. education expert in the country yes so um those sort of debates debates about um tariff policy debates about and particularly in the light of the discussion we've just had the nature of democracy how what sort of how you structure a democracy who should be involved who should get to vote and that's why i think it's fascinating for anybody who gets the opportunity to read about this period, and obviously Higginbotham was involved, you know, in a lot of these debates. Sometimes, you know, I, I think he's on the right side of debates. Sometimes he wasn't. But 
Um, just to and as a, on previous time I was on here, I talked about David Kemp's book about um, liberalism in the nineteenth century. And again, I think I would really encourage people to read as much as they can about this era because so many of these debates we now have uh, you do have this genesis back a long time ago and I think it's really valuable for people to know how they were dealt with in the past because they do inform how we should think about some of these issues today. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is a statue of Higginbotham, is there not? Yes. Uh, next, to, next to Treasury, uh, uh, erected in gratitude for his uh, work in the consolidation of the Axe. Yes. Which is yes. a very wonky sort of thing to and, be thankful and, for. And it's so important. From so we talked about this, I think, when we discussed um, David Kemp's book, mm. and I, I, I have this conversation with Zach Gorman, mm. um, the IPA's resident um, historian, a lot as well, which is just revitalizing an understanding of the liberal origins of Australia. So mm. for so long, for the bulk of the 20th century, Australian history has been dominated by a Labor interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's been written by Labor-sympathetic historians just yep. because that's the way the academy is structured and that's until recently that's mm. the way the history um, industry was um, uh, w- was structured as well. But, um, but the Labor movement came at the end of the 19th century and the bulk of the 19th century mm. was free trade liberalism as the driving dominant ideological mm. force and you were either for free trade liberalism or you were against free trade liberalism mm. that was the defining yeah. terms of the debate it wasn't conservatism in the sort of tory um british sense mm. it was you know a a, a liberal idea yeah. and yeah. and only in the last couple of years are we starting to revitalize understandings of that mm. It's it's just very important for us as a movement, as mm. a political movement, a, a group of people interested in um, uh, the future of Australia, to have an idea of where Australia came yep. from as well. Yep, completely agree. Yep. We might even share as a link, um, uh, Richard, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was A.R. Martin had a, a paper on uh, on that Labor view of history and, yep. and, and how the basically nothing happened in Australia until the working class turned up. Until the Shearer's strike of 1890. <laughs> yeah, the, the rest <laughs> of it, though, was just sort of, you know, just, doing crazy stuff. plodding stuff. along. Just yeah. setting plodding up a along. country. So uh, we, <laughs> might, we might include a link to that paper. And uh, David Kemp, uh, second volume coming out soon. I'm mm. sure next time you're, you're on the program, uh, Richard, you'll be able to tell us about that. Uh, but it might be time for some light relief. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew Bushnell. So, uh, um, you know, Andrew Bushnell and light relief are not normally terms that go together. I've, but, I've uh, spent the last uh, 50 minutes trying to sound really intellectual, knowing that I have been typecast as the guy who watches Netflix for this, <laughs> for this segment. Um, and I really hope that my university supervisor never listens to this show because he'll think that all I do is sit around watching Netflix and we can't let him know the truth. Um, <laughs> This week I watched uh, The Highwayman, uh, and which is a which is a revisionist take on the Bonnie and Clyde story. It's actually about two uh, former Texas Rangers, the Texas Rangers having been uh, abolished uh, by a progressive government in Texas uh, in the lead up to these events. But what they realised was when someone when these two people went on a massive killing spree, they needed some of that old school wisdom, and they got back these two retired. Uh, Texas Rangers, played by uh, Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson. Um, and, they, you know, they do a bit of that sort of old guy banter back and forth. But the shocking thing about this movie... Well, there were two shocking things, two shocking things. First of all, uh, it exists. One, yeah, one, <laughs> one, that this is a, one that this is a, actually a decent movie, right? So it's on Netflix. It's another one that they've bought sort of off the bottom shelf, so it was sort of sitting around as a project for a while. But 
Uh, it's actually good. It's unlike a lot of Netflix movies. It's beautiful to look at. It's really well shot. A um, lot of interesting, lot of interesting shots in it. Um, and then the second thing is that it's actually a really conservative movie. It's basically about there's still some life in these two old white guys, you know. <laughs> and when it comes, when push comes to shove, eventually someone has to do the dirty work, and that's that's just true of of our civilization. Is that we exist very happily in a very peaceful, uh, very mostly very peaceful situation, but underlying it is this kind of commitment that some people make on our behalf uh, to do things that we wouldn't want to do ourselves. And so this is this is great, this movie, because it attacks this idea of like, oh, you know, because you had the Warren Beatty 60s version of this story, which is like, oh, transgression, how good. Yeah, transgression's the best. And this movie's like, no, transgression is awful, and now it's time to shoot you. <laughs> yeah, also. <laughs> No, you're quite right, and um, a, a great program, and, and uh, part of that story was about the Texas Rangers themselves, who were formed when Texas was an independent country, continued on uh, after it joined the United States, and they always operated at the fringes of the law, and uh, or beyond, um, and, and so they were sort of reined in, disbanded, half-reformed, they were unloved, unwanted, as indeed these two old guys were. But then, yeah, when people go around, uh, cop killers, uh, completely, you know, just shooting up everything they, they want, it's like, dang, what are we going to do? Yeah. And the movie, I reckon it's, con- it's conservative. It's conservative in another way as well. Um, and the, uh, the big theme that I pulled out of it was it's actually really hostile to the surveillance state. So um, these two old guys come back and they're introduced to the new ways of doing policing. Those new ways of doing policing are wiretaps on the party yeah. telephone lines. Um, there are planes flying overhead over um, where um, uh, Clyde's family lives um, uh, observing. There's, there's a very funny scene where there's a guy dressed basically in a Ned Kelly costume as <laughs> A version of a tank for the 1920s um, uh, police force, and um, it doesn't actually help. And the um, so, in a funny way, it's like the metaphor there is um, we've invested all this money in the surveillance state, reading emails, tapping. But in fact, what you need is people on the ground. And I couldn't techniques. It's the old techniques, and I couldn't help but view that through the sort of debates about how we should fight the war on terror. We need more human assets and fewer electronic assets. Um, yeah, it was a, it's a really interesting commentary. There's kind of a symmetry with this uh, movie with uh, Clint Eastwood and Amy Adams from a while ago called Trouble with the Curve. Maybe no one ever saw it. <laughs> um, but anyway, that movie's about an a, a old baseball scout, old grizzled baseball scout, and they come in with their sabre metrics, you know, and they're yeah. like, oh, you know, you've got to measure everything. And he's like, no, I know... Trust me, I know a baseballer when I see one. Oh, so it's the anti-moneyball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. anti-moneyball. And and this this movie actually has that same theme where it's like you've got these you know guys from the FBI and they're like, oh, I've got these fancy techniques, and these two Texas Rangers are like, we're just going to track the people until we catch them. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what else to tell. You. And no surprise that in the next IPA review, uh, if you remember, you'll be able to read Andrew Bushnell uh, critique, uh, talking about a book called The Tyranny of Metrics. Gives <laughs> you <laughs> <laughs> the idea, right? The yeah, anti, this false, this the false precision ball. is like a, a bane of my existence. Well, yeah. In fact, that's a wonderful um, segue to mine because I'm reading 
or um, uh, going into again, I should say, because I read it many years ago. Um, Don Lavoie's Rivalry and Central Planning, The Socialist Calculation Debate Reconsidered. This is a book that was actually first published in 1985, um, but it was republished by the Mercatus Center in the United States. And Don Lavoie is an economist who died in 2001. This, this is actually an amazing book. It recounts the socialist calculation debate of the 1920s and 1930s between Ludwig von Mises uh, on and Frederick Hayek on one side, and the socialists Oscar Lange and Lang and Abba Lerner. The debate was about how can you plan a um, an economy in the absence of market prices, not just prices, but market prices. So, can is there a way that you can use technology or computers or just just high end maths to replicate what a market allocation would do and then tweak it to make it more fair in a socialist sense. Um, the book is uh, the, the book's argument is in fact that the really main contributions to this argument, contrary to uh, opinions later, were really done by Mises and Marx himself, Karl Marx, who who came up with the idea of a um, uh, non-market planning in, in actually quite a coherent way, according to Don Lavoie. Um, but it's a wonderful way, uh, reading this book is actually a really fascinating introduction to economics, if you have the opportunity and you're looking for a way into understanding free market economics in a, not, not by reading a textbook, but actually delving into what is the most important economic debate of the 20th century? Can governments plan um, and uh, get outcomes better than markets might be able to as well? That was obviously the um, dispute between the free capitalist countries and the socialist countries. But it's also still the debate now because we want the government to intervene in lots of markets to bring out better outcomes. We want the government to intervene in the electricity yeah. market, in the market for healthcare or health insurance. Isn't the, isn't the current version of the argument, though, Chris, that, well, it may have failed in the past, but now we have... Really, really big computers. Well, yeah, no, I mean that, but they knew about that too, as well. So, I mean, so computers are being invented as this debate is is going on, and and um, this is a slightly half formed thought. But one of the problems with that argument, there's a lot of problems with that argument, and Don Lavoy goes through them. One of the problems with that argument is that those computers, those powerful computers that we have now. Um, yes, you can imagine a government having that computer and it's solving the equations of the economy really powerful. But our economy is actually more complicated than it was in the past, in part because we all have computers. Mm. So we are making more complicated plans. We are making more complicated decisions. Firms are larger. They've got more yep. complex capital structures because we've got powerful computing System. So mm. even if the government had the most powerful computer in the world, well, so does everyone else, <laughs> making it more complicated again. So, look, that's actually not the main argument against socialist calculation, the computation argument, but it's, it's an interesting one to think about in a world of artificial intelligence and so forth. A book that needs to be read and reread. Thank you for sharing that. We'll put some uh, links in the notes. Uh, back to light relief. Um, I was in the uh, Salvation Army in uh, in Mornington, looking because there's always some good old books around there. Most of the good books have been cleaned out of the secondhand bookshops, and I found one by a bloke called Paul Carter uh, from 2005. It says, "Don't tell Mum I work on the oil rigs. She thinks I'm a piano player in a whorehouse." <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
I vaguely remember when it came out, and I thought, oh, that looks a bit silly, but it was um, one of the most enjoyable things I've, I've read for a while. It's very much a, a lad's book, and un- unapolog- this bloke is not a, a buff head, but uh, he did uh, go and work, uh, first of all, as a, as a labourer and then um, uh, a more skilled driller on oil rigs, on land, on sea, for about uh, 20 years, and it was a bloody rough game. You know, this was a men's world... You know, he, he describes how most of the people he worked with probably had criminal records. They were outcasts. He worked in, uh, you know, Nigeria, the Philippines, Vietnam, all over the world. But he's got a really sympathetic eye and a great turn of phrase. And, um, and I was thinking, you just don't read this kind of thing because sort of the um, that, that masculine world is um, uh, the subject of sustained critique. And um, certainly if you look at... Uh, read the review pages of, uh, of uh, newspapers and magazines. These are not the sort of books that men are supposed to be writing. So I didn't know much about it. I read this. I really enjoyed it. It's got um, uh, you know, it's called, you know, people like John Birmingham are endorsing it, calling it great two-fisted writing. And <laughs> so I looked at it and, uh, and, uh, and there's, he talks about as, he's, as his body started to go, he actually started doing a, a, a working as a copywriter in Sydney of all things. So he obviously had the sort of a native gift for storytelling. But um, uh, I looked him up and there's an interview in the uh, Australian Financial Review. He sold two million books. Yeah, yeah. Not a bad, not That's a bad. bad. Yeah, bad and he's joke. moved back to Perth and has a nice house and a nice wife. It's and it's almost, uh, almost as Bernie Sanders. Uh, oh, you got yeah. to the joke first. And I just, I'm, 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 I'm so uh, Maybe sort of pleased. He should get a job at a university, you know. Yeah. Well, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, I think uh, if Melbourne Uni. Melbourne University Press had have picked him up. Maybe uh, they 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 would they have would been able to continue to yeah. uh, um, uh, still continue. But uh, yeah, no, it's just a sign for me of uh, the hunger for that kind of thing mm. in the world. That uh, as men's uh, men becomes very confused about their roles. That there is a a place for um, uh, eulogising those who work with their hands in sometimes very very dangerous environments. Mm. That's been another Looking Forward. Uh, next week, Chris Berg will be hosting the show on his own, I, um, but I'm sure it will still be awesome. Uh, I'd like to thank our panellists, Chris Berg. Thank you. Andrew Bushnell. Cheers. Dr. Richard Orsop. It's been a pleasure. And, of course, our producer, James Bolt. We'll be back with more Looking Forward next week.